Okay, we are in Nehemiah chapter 4 today. We'll be finishing up the fourth chapter and starting chapter 5. So let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this study in the Old Testament about uh, your people as they struggled to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then as they struggled with uh, social problems and economic problems within their their midst and we just thank you for this uh, this word that we can see how uh, Nehemiah demonstrated uh, principles of godly leadership and how you supported him in that and how he he did uh, work to uh, teach the Jews uh, what your word was and how how they ought to uh, behave Lord, we just pray that as we study that you'll help us to understand and, and apply it in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we will, for context, we're going to start reading in chapter 5 today. We'll start with verse 1 and read through verse 13. Chapter 5, Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we'll read. <clears throat> Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jew, Jews. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There are also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax and that upon our lands and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I pondered them in my mind, and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then, then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Different translations change things around. So I continue. What are you doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, and their automobiles, growing orchards, and their houses, and their percentage of money, grain, and wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then said they, We will restore them, and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest? Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, May God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep his promise. May he be shaken out of nothing. The whole assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. Okay. Well, to, today we're going to start by finishing up chapter 4. And chapter 4 was describing how they were uh, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in the face of opposition from the surrounding uh, pagan nations. 
And we saw that uh, Nehemiah was facing uh, internal problems. The people were getting tired and discouraged. They had forgotten God. And there was a lot of work to do. They were working long days. And discouragement was setting in. There was also the external problems. If you remember, the, the uh, Sanballat and the Samaritans had plotted to send people in unawares with, to kill the Jews while they worked on the wall. It was like terrorist raids. And so Nehemiah demonstrated his leadership by uh, setting up a, a defense system. We saw that he uh, provided uh, armament for the people, made sure they were organized. He organized uh, men with trumpets to be able to sound the alarm and, and have the different armed groups come to a, a point where there might be an attack. So he organized a good defensive system. Uh, he also encouraged the people and told them uh, again that, that God will fight for them. And he reminded them of what they were working for. They had been persecuted and oppressed for decades. And by having a fortified city, they would be able to stand up against their enemies uh, and their families would have future security and be able to prosper. So this showed all his leadership abilities. Now the defenses that we talked about before were... Um, you know, what to do during the daytime if they were attacked. They all carried uh, spears, swords, but he also uh, wanted to make sure that they would be uh, able to defend themselves at night, and so we'll get into that. But today we're starting at really at verse 21, which is, in a way, sum summarizes what we've, his defensive plan. It says, so he carried on the work with half of them holding spears, from dawn until the stars appeared. So he had half the workers holding spears, half were um, in a, a working, uh, so they were, they were always on, on alert and ready to send off an attack. But you can see um, how long their days were. They worked from dawn until the stars appeared. Let's Let's look back at Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. And we'll see what a, I guess more of a typical work day looked like. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Would someone like to read verse 15 for us? Okay, so here's instructions as to how to pay the workers, but they were to be paid before the sun sets because their work day was over. It doesn't say anything about working until the stars come out. So this was your typical work day, sunrise to sunset. They were still long days, but this work on the wall went until the stars came out. It was very long days. They were working overtime, I guess. Um, so that's why they were getting weary uh, probably six days a week. Um, what, sunrise to stars at 16 hours maybe? Long days. 
So again, this kind of summarizes their uh, defense uh, plan during the day. Uh, half of them were armed and ready to fight. And as we get into verses 22 and 23, it's, well, what, what about at nighttime? So verse 22, at that time I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So here, those workers who are living in the surrounding cities, who apparently went home every night to, to their own homes, he asked them to stay in Jerusalem and to keep their helpers or their servants with them. And so the purpose here is so that you've got enough people within the city at night that if an alarm is sounded, they will be able to respond to an attack. A lot of people, it doesn't, he's not expecting them to stay awake all night and be on guard. I'm sure they've got appointed guards, but the vast majority of the laborers and the workers will sleep at night, but they'll be ready to respond. And so that way he has enough people there to defend the city. So that's their plan at night. Um, then looking at the last verse is the example Nehemiah gives of himself. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. So here's Nehemiah, his family, his, the men under his command. Uh, talks about his guard and his servants, all those associated with him. They stayed in the city. He says they didn't even take their clothes off. They were... Um, ready to jump up and fight at a minute's notice. So that's what they did. <clears throat> and he's, he's not off living in the palace while everybody else is on the front lines. He's there with them. We've seen that before. He's helping to construct. He's watching what's going on. Um, he's leading by example. He's not just leading by telling other people what to do. And so he's, he shows a lot of good uh, leadership properties. Now the last phrase in this verse is very unclear. We've run into that before in the Hebrew. Literally, it says, each man his weapon, the water. What on earth does that mean? So the general consensus is that each man took his weapon even as he went to, to get water to drink. So that seems to be what they're saying here. Um, so that they were always ready uh, for an attack. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, would someone like to read verse 8 for us? Okay, so here's a warning to us in the church age. We have an adversary. We have to be on alert. We have to be ready. 
at all times to defend ourselves. Because he's looking for someone to attack, like a hungry lion looking for a lone gazelle that he can capture. So we have the same sort of uh, encouragement to be ready for attack at all times. Okay, so that kind of ends chapter 4, where we've talked about building the wall, defending themselves against the uh, opposition of the enemy, and how they accomplish that. <clears throat> now, chapter 5 uh, really deals with different subject matter altogether. It does not talk about the surrounding nations. It does not talk about the wall construction at all. Uh, instead, what we have is a, a social and economic problems within the Jewish community itself that he needs to deal with. One of the questions here is whether this event occurs while they're building the wall or if it occurs later. There's no time stamp on this chapter to tell us exactly when it occurs. So here's part of the problem. Let's, let's turn ahead to chapter 6. <coughs> Someone would like to read verse 15 for us. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Yulu in 52 days. 52 days to build the wall. Now, I don't know if that includes the Sabbaths or not, but you're talking around two months. So this was a major rush construction job. And we will see in chapter 5 at the end of verse 7, he says, I held a great assembly. The question is, is would Nehemiah interrupt the construction project to hold this assembly that he'll, we'll see about in verse 7? Or does this all occur after the walls are completed? We're not told, but that's kind of what the question is here. However, uh, the conditions that they talk about were ongoing. So uh, they're kind of a background of something that was going on while the construction was in project. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. It just kind of describes the, the issue. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. <clears throat> Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. <coughs> so this is <clears throat> kind of the circumstances. They needed grain. Um, and so they were protesting. And it's not just the men protesting, it also says, and their wives. You know, when the wives get involved, you know it's got to be a serious problem. <laughs> um, and I think at least one of the commentaries mentioned that, you know, the women generally were the ones who prepared the food. So they were painfully aware of the problem of not having enough food to feed their children. And so they would be very much encouraged to want to protest the problem. Um, now, the other thing we see is their outcry was not against the Samaritans or uh, 
the Amorites, it was against her Jewish brothers. It was against other Jews. So this was an internal problem uh, within their own society. There was corruption. There were abusive practices of Jew against Jew. So here's another problem for Nehemiah to deal with. He's got the construction problem going on. He's got the external enemies to worry about. Now he's got internal social issues. Um, so the circumstances really start with a lack of food, and we will see some poverty involved too. Um, again, verse 2 uh, mentions the lack of food supply to feed and it's not, it, it sounds like they have large families here. Their sons and their daughters, they don't have enough food for them. So that's the circumstances. Um, if you look at the end of verse 3, it'll mention famine. Now, I don't think any of us have ever experienced a famine. I think the worst that we usually experience is the Cheerios box is empty, so we have to eat cornflakes instead. And that's... Um, so they are under a, a real famine. They're out of grain, the basic sustenance. Um, and they need more grain. So they're raising this outcry, and it's against their Jewish brothers. So that's part of what the problem is. It's not just purely uh, like a drought where no one has any food. There's something else going on here, and we'll see that in the next few verses. So going on to verse 3. It says, and there were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. So we do see the famine going on. But now we have, in verse 3, we have landowners, people who actually own land. And so the speculation is that verse 2 does not mention land, so these are probably people who are laborers, who don't have their own houses, they don't have farms, but they work for others. So we've got these different classes of people. Verse 2 are the, I guess, landless, non-landowners. Verse 3, we have landowners. <clears throat> now it says um, they're having to mortgage their land to pay for all this scarce grain because of the famine. One thing a famine brings about is lack of food means that what is available is going to cost more. Food becomes more expensive. So everybody's feeling the pinch. They have a bad inflation problem going on here uh, with the cost of food going up. That's the big learning. Yes. Now, mortgages... Um, you know, it's common for us to have a mortgage on a home to help pay for it when we buy a new home. You know, that's, that's one issue. What they have here is the Jews inherited the land from their forefathers. Everything should have been paid for. It's not like they were buying land to live in or buying houses. They inherited it. Everything should have been paid for. They are mortgaging to get money to buy food which is a completely different situation than having a mortgage on a house when you're buying a new home. 
So that's what, what the landowners are complaining about. Um, so it does talk about a famine. Um, the other thing that's going on is if this is, occurs while they are working on the building of the walls, you've got a lot of people who are working without pay. They are volunteering their time. It doesn't say anywhere that Nehemiah is paying all these people to work on the walls. So instead of being able to go out and work in the fields and be paid to have money to buy food, they are volunteering their time. And I think they're expecting Nehemiah or someone to supply them with grain to keep them alive while they're working on the walls. So that's another issue that's going on here. Um, we do have a couple of prophets that mention uh, famines or food supply issues in the land at this time. If you remember Haggai uh, and Zechariah both preached about 80 years earlier to get the temple construction restarted. The Jews had let it sit for, what was it, 20 years without working on it. So let's look at Haggai chapter 1. <coughs> So this is a prophet who spoke about 80 years earlier. Haggai chapter 1, would someone like to read verses 9 through 11 for us? You look for much, but behold, it comes to little when you bring it home. I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Okay, through 11, please. Therefore, okay. because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Okay, so here God is disciplining them because they are not working on the temple like they were supposed to. And what we have here is drought conditions. He talks about the grain and the uh, wine, everything being of short supply. So they were not prospering. Uh, there was some uh, drought conditions here. So that was 80 years earlier. Now let's turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi, if you look at the dates um, in the notes before, uh, concerning these prophets, Malachi was uh, a contemporary with Nehemiah. So Malachi may have been prophesying uh, during the later parts of Mal uh, Nehemiah's rule as governor. So Malachi chapter 3, would someone like to read verses 8 through 11 for us here? 8 through 11. may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, 
And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, so here's a... Uh, God is rebuking them for not uh, bringing the proper tithes uh, to the temple. And he's talking about the discipline again for their disobedience. And it sounds like he talks about the devourer of, uh, of the ground, of the fruits of the ground being destroyed. So again, the, the discipline on them would be uh, a loss of produce, agricultural produce. And so this is, again, a contemporary of Nehemiah is when Malachi is preaching. So it may be during this time or it may be afterwards, or, but close. So we do have a couple mentions here of, of crop shortages uh, in the prophets. So it's very likely at this time they are, they are having another uh, famine. So as part of the problem is the famine, the shortage of food. We have another problem show up in verse 4, back in Nehemiah chapter 5. It says, Also there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. So we have a king's tax. There's a joke that says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. And, and uh this demonstrates, I think, why it is a joke. <laughs> um, it was a king's tax. This was not a local tax. This was not the governor, Nehemiah, you know, collecting tax for local improvement projects. This was the king in Artaxerxes in the capital city of Susa. So the Persians had been fighting wars. Artaxerxes' father is the one who led... Uh, the Persian armies against Greece. You may hear about the, what was it, a um, battle at Thermopylae where I can't remember if it was a hundred Spartans held off a hundred thousand Persians for a week. Well, that was Xerxes. You know, they went on and they, they, they ended up burning Athens. Um, the war is expensive. You know, they would, they would, um, loot the cities and, and collect gold and things, but it was still expensive. And we've also mentioned a few times that uh, there had been a revolt in Egypt against the Persians. And so he had to fight that. So um, there was a drain on this, the treasuries. The other thing that kings were really good at was hoarding gold. They all collected gold and silver. Um, about 120 years after what we're looking at here, Alexander the Great conquered Susa. Remember, Susa is the capital city where Nehemiah came from. And it said he found 270 tons of gold and 1,200 tons of silver in the treasuries at Susa. A nearby, another nearby capital city called Persepolis had even more gold and silver. So they were draining the country and accumulating it, you know, in the, in the treasuries in the capital buildings. Uh, there was an entire article I read about Alexander and every city that he captured and how much gold and silver 
he accumulated as he went through these cities because they all did the same thing. They all loved gold. They drained the people. So we have more landowners here in verse 4. Uh, these apparently are able to uh, get grain. They don't mention the food shortage, but they're getting taxed um, so much that they are also borrowing money. Maybe not mortgaging their land, but borrowing in order to pay for the taxes and pay for the food. Now we start getting into the real problem with verse 5. It says, And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So they were borrowing money from other Jews. And these other Jews were the wealthy class. Um, so that's why we saw back in verse 1. Uh, were, this outcry was against their Jewish brothers. So the first part of verse 5 says, Our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Um, we talk about blood relatives. These are people we're closely related to. And that's kind of what they're saying here. You know, these are not Samaritans. They're not Philistines. They're other Jews. You know, they're our brothers. You know, we are, you know, they are one people in God's eyes. Um, the same nationality. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58, would someone like to read verses 6 and 7 for us? Is this not the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? It is not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Okay, so, so this Isaiah is preaching to the northern kingdom uh, years earlier, but this is what God is saying. This is how you should live. Verse uh, 7 ends talking about your own flesh. Your brother's... Um, your brother Jews, basically, other Jews. And it, it talks about letting them, letting them go free, not, not tying them up in slavery, giving them the food that they need, taking care of them. Um, and so these verses describe how the Jews should have been taking care of their fellow Jews. But that is not what was happening in Jerusalem. The verse 5 Back in chapter 5 of Nehemiah, it goes on to say, Our children like their children. So you've got the wealthy class, you've got the poor class. The children of the poor are just as valuable as the children of the wealthy. They're just as important. You know, there should not be the class distinctions. The poor people are saying, you know, 
don't we love and cherish our children as much as the wealthy do? Um, you know, why should we have to treat our children differently than the wealthy have to treat theirs? <clears throat> so these poor workers, those who are losing their property, they've got nothing left to give in return for the money they need to buy food. Those who have already lost their property don't have to worry about taxes anymore. They were property taxes, basically. So the government would tax the property owners until they've take, you know, they've had to give up their property, driven them into poverty. Now they have nothing left to mortgage to be able to get money to buy food. And what we see is uh, the complete loss of a middle class here. You've got the very wealthy, you've got the very poor. And it's the government and, and, all, and the um, practices of the people who are driving this. So if you need money, you don't have property that you can use for, to mortgage, what do you do? What do you have left? You only have your own body and your family. So they would sell themselves into slavery in order to stay alive. Now the Mosaic Law has some regulations concerning this. Let's look back at Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. Okay, let's look at verses 39 through 43. This is a little longer, so why don't we read around here. Uh, Leviticus 25, 39 through 43. And Joe, you want to start for us? Verse 39. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan, and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Okay, so here we have this, this situation. Um, the countrymen are becoming so poor, uh, they sell themselves as bond servants. <coughs> and so this describes to the Jews that if they take someone in as a bond servant, how they treat them. You know, they're to treat them well. This is... Uh, I guess the form of safety net, social safety net that, that the Jewish society had. You would become an indentured servant to someone else and they would take care of you if you ran out of resources to take care of yourself. And they were not to mistreat you and they were not to sell you as slaves to someone else. It doesn't specifically say other nations here but that's uh, certainly uh, included. And then in the year of Jubilee, they would be released. I 
I think there was a limitation on, on someone who was uh, a bond servant. They would be, their debt would be forgiven in seven years. I didn't do as much research here as I should have, but the year of Jubilee was every 50 years. The people would go back to their land. They would, the land would be given back to them. It'd be like a whole complete do-over. You're starting from scratch. You have no debt. You're living on your property that you've inherited from your family again. So that's why we look at a jubilee as being a celebration. Uh, everybody gets to go back and start from scratch, start over again. So those were some of the rules. Let's look at Exodus chapter 21. You can look at a little longer passage here. So here we'll look at um, see, make sure. I, oh, okay. I was in Leviticus. I'm thinking that does not look right. Exodus chapter 21. So verses 1 through 11 are laws concerning slaves. So why don't we continue reading around. Um, Natalia, if you want to read verse 1 for us. Okay. You want to start back there? Okay. These are the laws you are set to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he had a wife when he comes, uh, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. Verse 5. Um, when he says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his, his ear through with an ox, and, uh, and he shall serve him forever. When a man tells his daughter as a concubine, she is not to leave as a man. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he does not, if he does not provide her with these three things, then she has to go free without any payment of money. Okay, so again, uh, regulations concerning the, this form of slavery or bond servants. Um, I guess verse 2 does tell us that after seven years they shall go free. Uh, the, the debt is considered to pay, be paid off. Um, but we see the, the rules concerning how they're to be treated. They'll be treated well, uh, not abused. If a family comes, 
husband and wife come into slavery, they go out together. But then there's the question of, well, what if the owner gives a wife to the slave man and so forth? Who goes and who stays? Uh, and there's a provision for the men or the, those who are in slavery to remain in the house as this permanent servant. Um, but it also mentions, starting in verse uh, 7, about their daughters. They are basically not treated as slaves. They are treated as though they are married off. They enter this other family, and they either serve as a wife to the master or to his son, and the, and the, the daughters are uh, uh, treated as, in a sense, as a daughter-in-law of the new master. One of the things specifically uh, excluded here is there's no way that they can sell her to foreigners. You've taken her into your family, you treat her as a daughter-in-law or, or as a wife, you cannot sell her off. Um, which brings us back to uh, our passage in verse 5, where one of the complaints is we are... We are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. So it appears that they are being treated as slaves, not as wives, as, as the law prescribed, and possibly even sold into bondage to uh, surrounding nations. And it goes on and at the end of that verse. It says, we're helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. They have no way of earning enough money to escape slavery. They can never pay off their debts. They're stuck. And there's no hope for them to be released from this condition because the, the, the wealthy have taken away their means of sustenance. And there are... Uh, we're not going to look at them, but under the under the law, there were specific regulations about if you're taking something uh, of value um, to secure the loan, you cannot take away the like the mortar and pestle. They need that to live. You can't take away their blanket. There's certain basic things that people need to live. You cannot take those away. Here they were taking their their property. Their, their means of, uh, of making money to be able to pay off their debts. And so they're, they're stuck uh, in that situation. So those verses basically describe the situation that's going on that Nehemiah hears about. And then starting in verse 6, we'll see his response. And so we'll save that and we'll take up there next time. Joe, would you like to pray for us? Dear Lord, we thank you for the time we can open this word to see what history has for us and the way you treated uh, your people in the past. Lord, we think of that fact a long time ago, but you're the same God that was there. You're the same God. You haven't changed. And Lord, you know that you still care for your people. We just pray, Lord, as, as we are, as a nation go forward, that you'll be with us, walk with us, that we, uh, let us be obedient to the place you have us, so that we'll walk in the footsteps you want us to walk in. We just look forward to support us, be with us, and watch over. Thank you for this hour. Pray for the next hour to come. Depression and Frank. Amen.